Everybody has things on the corner of their desk that they never get to. And that's, I think, particularly true in a resource-constrained environment like an SNE. We've worked with many partners where the head engineer is also the head of quality and the head of purchasing and helps the sales team out. And when you have somebody who's wearing that many hats, innovation becomes basically the last thing on their list. And so that corner of the desk project, maybe we wouldn't mind, you know, playing around a little bit when we get to it, when we find the time. And generally speaking, we just never do find the time. IdeaWorks and, and, and College of Applied Research in general can be that capacity. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, I chat with two very interesting people. Andrea Johnson, General Manager of the Center for Emerging Research Initiatives at Mohawk College, and I also chat with Jeffrey McIsaac, Dean of Applied Research at Mohawk College, about IdeaWorks, about research, and about something called the Valley of Death. Now, the way this episode came to be was entirely by accident. See, back in September of 2021, the Trillium Network launched a directory of publicly available manufacturing ecosystem partners. We call them MEPs. This list includes groups like incubators, training centers, economic development organizations, and a bunch of research institutions. While getting the directory off the ground, we reached out to several of these organizations to learn about what they do, and it was on one of these video calls where I was first introduced to Jeffrey and Andrea from Mohawk College and IdeaWorks. So while listing off all the things IdeaWorks does, I recall Andrea very casually mentioned something that I'd never heard of before, at least not in the context of research. The Valley of Death. I raised my hand and I humbly asked, what's the Valley of Death? Then she and Jeffrey explained it to me. Now, the overly reductive, almost to the point of being inaccurate definition is, quote, where good ideas go to die. And while that statement in and of itself is mostly accurate, the most important lessons were why ideas fall into this valley and how to avoid dying in the valley. I'll give you a hint. It starts with a call to idea works. Now, as I came to understand in greater detail, research can be a very costly enterprise. And without a clear path or a timeline to recuperate those costs, like, say, through a commercial activity of, oh, I don't know, retailing your new idea, it's very difficult to proceed with development. This is where IdeaWorks comes in. They're in the business of de-risking research. Here's how they do that, and how they're ensuring that we can keep on making things in Ontario. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario. I am sitting with two new friends of mine from IdeaWorks at Mohawk College. College. They're not my colleagues. They're, they're from the College of Mohawk. Uh, Jeff, Andrea, please introduce yourselves. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I'm Jeff McIsaac. I am the Dean of Applied Research at Mohawk. Thank you for having us. I'm Andrea Johnson, and I'm the General Manager for the Center for Emerging Research Initiatives at Mohawk College. Thanks to both of you for coming on today. Now, the genesis of this episode happened um, a few, actually, was, I guess it was maybe last few weeks ago, where it was myself, my colleague Shannon Miller from Trillium speaking with Andrea, and then we were talking about uh, having IdeaWorks in our manufacturing ecosystem partners directory, shameless plug for our directory, and I'm happy to do that. And over the course of that conversation, Andrea, you kind of just casually dropped that phrase. Have you ever heard of the Valley of Death? 
And I kind of paused for a minute and I was like, I, I think so. And then I was like, she's probably not to thinking about what I'm thinking about. So Andrea, in the, in the, can we try to recreate that, 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 that conversation we had? So when, so let's, for those of you just joining us, here's Andrea asking Nick, if he's ever heard of the Valley of Death and Nick says, no, what, what is that? So once you told me that you'd never heard of the Valley of Death, of course, I was happy to explain what it is, because it's a fundamental reason as to why applied research in Canada exists. Everyone's quite familiar with basic, with discovery research, what comes out of universities, often what comes out of an organization's R&D department. And then we can all be, we're all very familiar with the idea of, you know, manufacturing a product, getting in the market, fulfilling orders, all of that stuff. But the valley of death is where applied research kind of helps pull you out of a chasm. It's a place where often good ideas go to die just because they don't have the right support. It's very, very hard to get an idea off of a napkin and into production. And the point of applied research is to make that stage where you're prototyping, where you're testing, where you aren't quite sure the right way to go with things, you know in your gut you have a good idea, and you, but you don't know how to get it in the market, that's where applied research sort of builds that bridge between the idea and the production and manufacturing of a new idea, of a new product, of a new service. So in that context, then, tell us uh, real quick about some of the work that IdeaWorks is doing. Sure, I'll jump in. Uh, so we work, you know, very much as Andrea says, we work to try and bridge that valley of death, and and we work in a wide range of sectors. So we have several different major innovation centers: uh, one in advanced and, and and additive manufacturing. We have a team that focuses in energy and power, uh, where we help companies uh, work on solutions anywhere from the nano grid, which would basically be the electrical system of your home all the way up to the full-grade scale with utility-scale companies. We have uh, a center that does digital health. Uh, probably our best-known center is our medic team in digital health, where we work on various different solutions in both the public and private sector to support the adoption of digital health technologies across uh, Ontario, across Canada, and even globally. We have a team in medical technologies, the Medical Technologies Innovation Center, where we're focused on uh, the adoption of digital devices for, for uh, the healthcare sector. Uh, and that's in partnership with our School of Health. And then we have the Center for Climate Change Management, which uh, incubates a number of different initiatives working on issues around climate change. So regionally, as well as nationally, looking at things like greenhouse gas emissions and how we can help Canada meet our targets for 2030. We have a research chair, which leads a team in sustainable building systems, uh, and that's based around our sort of crown jewel, which is our Joyce Center for Partnership and Innovation on campus at Mohawk College and Fennel Campus, where we have Canada's largest institutional net zero building. So it's about 100,000 square feet uh, and incorporates a wide range of new and emerging technologies um, to as kind of a living lab to demonstrate how those technologies can help uh, modernize buildings in Canada and help us meet our energy targets. And then we have a research chair in the industrial internet of things, a uh, very important area where, especially in the advanced manufacturing sector, where we're looking at the use of sensors and data, different communication technologies to try and help to support our advanced manufacturing companies here in, in Southwest Ontario in particular, help them to adopt new technologies and, uh, and ideally take advantage of some of this, uh, the new digital technologies that are coming out um, in the marketplace. So 
Jeff, I'm going to give you an opportunity here to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing, because in doing the research for this, I noticed that Mohawk College has been rising in the ranks as a research institution. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was done? Uh, yeah, great question. So um, something we're all quite proud of, the rankings that you're talking about are largely results, I guess, that are put out by through survey by a group called Research uh, info source, and they do university rankings as well as college rankings for the large research colleges. Uh, it's a national survey, and we sort of sort of, sort of ranks us against our peer group across the country. And over the last several years, uh, it was a core focus of our college strategic plan at Mohawk College was to raise uh, raise our profile nationally in applied research for the target of making the top ten. Uh, so we first achieved that a couple of years ago, and, and we are we had a national ranking of seventh. And in the most recent rankings that came out, we had risen to fourth. The, I guess if you ask the reason for how we managed to do that, uh, the secret of our success is our people. Uh, we have an outstanding team of, uh, of researchers, uh, professional staff, uh, students. We work very closely with um, our partners here in the community. We're very, very fortunate that we have such great access to resources and to, to our community. Uh, and, and as a result, we've seen you know, ongoing success. I often say that I really only care about two things. And you know, one is how can we help our students? And the second is how can we help our partners? And I feel strongly that if we get those two things right, great things will happen. And, and, uh, and I think the last few years, the kind of results we've seen sort of speak to the success of that. Well, congratulations. Thank now, you. on this subject then, getting back to the Valley, I want to make this subject or at least this episode as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. And I'm, I would imagine that the two of you probably have an idea in your head of who needs to hear this. What I want to get from you two today is some, some examples of some success stories, maybe even some lessons about how to avoid the valley, how to know if you're falling in the valley, how to get out of the valley, who can help getting you out of the valley. So that's so that's what I kind of want to flush out from, from you guys today. So what is the first sort of like what's the first stone of a hiker falling into the valley? Um I'll also okay, that's a uh, I'll I'll give an example from my own personal career. This is this is how I sort of started. So it's very much a part of the innovation journey. Like and, and if you if you think of of the the life cycle of an innovation, a lot of times it'll start as Andrea mentioned earlier, in a research lab somewhere, whether it be in the university sector or in a private sector, and someone will have a really cool idea, and there'll be some really interesting work that gets done, and you'll run into some bumps and some challenges along the way, and then one day, the light bulb moment happens, and you have some success. And that success might be in a lab, it might be on a bench somewhere in a lab, you might have done it right the first time, or maybe you got it right the first handful of times, Maybe you have it right, you know, we, I, I was developing materials, so maybe I got it right and I made 100 grams of something and it did exactly what I wanted to do or something like that. That's a pretty exciting time. And our culture, I think, uh, in, in research is to celebrate those kinds of wins, and rightly so. Those are, that's a big deal. It's a long, hard slog to get there, and brilliant people you know, spend their lives getting to that light bulb moment. The challenge, I think, though, in, again, this what is the first stone is that nobody wants to buy 100 grams of something. That's not what you want to sell. You want to sell 100 tons of something. And there's a significant difference between something that's that I know how to make on a Tuesday when I got lucky and I got 100 grams of it 
and something that I can consistently put out the door every single day of the week in the 100 ton range. That's, there's a huge gap there. And that's really where that valley is, is that there's there are skills, there's knowledge, there's uh, an understanding of the market, there's process constraints, there's supply chain constraints. There's a million things that come to play before you can take this win that you had and turn it into something that might have a significant economic impact for the people of Ontario. So how do we get there? Unfortunately, a lot of the conventional wisdom might be, now that it works, you should start a business and commercialize it. So there's a huge push uh, in, in all, at all levels and in all sectors. There's a huge push towards commercializing these things. And I don't think that most, you know, most people who haven't actually walked that journey themselves don't actually understand what that word entails and the amount of challenge that might come with that. They might think this is the easy part now. Now I got it to work. Now I, now the easy part, you know, if you build it, they will come. Now I, I, people, this is going to be great. It's not. Uh, and, and sometimes it's actually far harder to do, you know, that part of the work than it is to get the 100 grams out the door on, on the Tuesday. So our role is to help to provide the tools that people need to do that. Uh, you asked for some success stories. So we had, you know, in a couple of examples, we've had um, a, a, a partner of ours, a longstanding partner of ours who worked in the dental uh, space. He, he, you know, helped to make dental implants. That was one of the things that he did. And there was a conventional type of technology that was used to do that. That was a very well-established market. And so he wanted to adopt a new or an advanced technology to do it. And he had heard that 3D printing was kind of cool. And if we could do some 3D printing stuff, maybe we could make some, some inroads into the, the dental market. So one way to do that, maybe a conventional pathway, might be to go out, buy a 3D printer, download some stuff off the web, cross your fingers and hope for the best. But there's a big step to take between I made something on my 3D printer and there's somebody walking down Main Street with an implant in their mouth that came off of a machine that was, I mean, there's a huge gap there. And, and, and so how do, you, how do you get over that, that hurdle? And that's where somebody like the Advanced Manufacturing Innovation Center at Mohawk can come in. We have access and expertise to the tools and resources that you need. You go far beyond just simply downloading something off the web. You can talk to people who are experts in material science and experts in in 3D printing, we try cutting edge uh, techniques and most advanced 3D printing technologies that are available in the market. And you can learn a lot of those things and answer some of those questions before you decide to make your own investment in terms of going out and buying a 3D printer. You can address some of those questions, take some of that risk out of things. It's a very risky venture to decide to you know, build a factory with brand new equipment and you're not really sure how to run it. That's very risky. We can take that some of that, or at least some of that risk off the table for you by doing it a few times in a sort of simulated production environment. And then you go in with your eyes a little bit more wide open and a little bit more informed. And, and I think to build on what Jeff was saying and to go back, Nick, to your, in a way, hiking analogy, you're going out there with a guide. And the guide certainly isn't going to promise that you won't encounter a rainstorm or that your tent pole might not break in the middle of a backcountry trek. But the guide's there to make sure that you're setting off with the right equipment, that you're making the right choices, that you have the right team at your back, so that when you reach the end of this valley, and we use the metaphor of a bridge, we can go down in the valley, there's lots of ways you can take it. When you reach that point, you're equipped. We, we call it that knowledge transfer. Um, the, the government has a term called HQPs, which is highly qualified professionals. But 
our goal with applied research, and I think I speak for the entire college sector in addition to what we do at IdeaWorks, is to make sure that we're sending you out with the right knowledge to grow so that when you come out of the valley, you aren't just sort of bringing the right equipment out with you. You don't just have a product, but you're equipped with those survival skills. So the next time you go through this, when you're iterating, you're picking the right manufacturing partner. If if you're going into production, you're making the right equipment choices. You're hiring the right talent. And in a lot of cases, that's sort of hiring away our our student talent from us once a project is done. And that's fine. Um, But all of that is, it's, it's about a partnership, which is why we're very deliberate in that we have applied research partners, not applied research clients. I'm going to ask some questions now about research, and I'm really sorry if they are very, very dumb. Applied research, academic research, how many different kinds of research are there? It's not a dumb question at all. In fact, it's kind of an existential question for us. So uh, the short answer is there are lots of different kinds of research uh, at lots of different kinds of levels. The major uh, delineation that I would say between academic research, what I would call academic research and what we do is that academic research, it would be the type of research that most people are familiar with in graduate school and universities, those types of things, is largely driven by a couple of different factors. Uh, The first would be is largely inquiry driven. And when we say that, what we mean is someone has a cool idea and they want to kind of dig into it and check it out. That's where a lot of most brilliant advancements that we've ever seen in the world have come from is the idea of, you know, smart people with cool ideas digging into things and, and, and answering questions that no one else has thought to even ask, let alone solve. The other facet that largely defines academic research at the university level is the idea of publication. So it's large, there's, there's a, the expression is publish or perish. There's a large expectation that the work that's done is for the good of humanity, and we're going to publish that work broadly. Uh, Most of the metrics that are used to sort of evaluate the quality of the output from a given researcher, lab, or PI, principal investigator, is largely going to be driven on what they publish. They will publish in in various different academic journals, and even those journals are themselves rated. So a paper that's published in one journal might be viewed as being more influential than a paper that's, that's published in a different journal that might not be viewed quite so highly amongst the community. They also rate on how often their papers are cited. So if you have a paper that you put out 10 years ago and it was viewed as influential, then it will show up as a citation in other people's work that follows your work. You'll have been, you know, sort of groundbreaking in that sense. And and then the merit is, is evaluated by the number of citations you get. So the knowledge that is generated in that form of research is usually disseminated by some form of publication, and it is for the benefit of the community at large. If there is intellectual property that is generated, which has some value, or we view it as being commercial, uh, commercial potential, there will be another form of publication or protection that we put in place, oftentimes something like a patent, and then that can kind of crystallize the value of the intellectual property or the know-how that's been created, and can and, and then so some value can presumably be captured or derived from that, whether in partnership with another company or, or something else, or starting your own spinoff or various different channels. Uh, that's what we call technology transfer. So most schools will have things called technology transfer offices, where you're moving technology from the bench and into some form of marketplace. Those two things often go hand in hand, where you have a, a team that sort of guides a, a researcher 
first you should patent, then you can publish afterwards, but let's kind of make sure that the steps are followed in the right order so that we don't end up painting ourselves into a corner. Those kinds of things, lots of work and lots of strategy around that type of work. Our work and what we call applied research, as we've said, is sort of after that stage of the development uh, and is done, as, uh, as Andrea mentioned, is done almost entirely, almost exclusively with a partner. So it's not inquiry-led. It's not because we have really cool ideas and we want to try them. It's because the partners that come to us are stuck with challenges and problems, and they're saying, we don't know where to go from here. Help us. And so our, we are responding to an industry-driven question. We're not coming up with our own inquiry questions. We're responding to industry questions. And we do it in partnership with them. And as such, we don't care if we publish. Generally speaking, we don't. We also don't care if uh, there's any intellectual property rights that come out of it. In fact, our policy, generally speaking, across the college sector is that our intellectual property is there for the benefit of the partner. It's not for us to commercialize or to try and find our own value. It's because we're trying to help the partner achieve their aims, and they are the ones who are going to commercialize this intellectual property. The vehicle for commercialization is therefore already there. We don't have to create a spinoff. We're helping an existing business to succeed and to grow. So uh, it's just a different approach towards the idea of commercialization. So those are the two big categories. I mean, within there, obviously, there's there's more basic research. There's uh, you know there's there's uh, scientific research where there's people understanding uh, basic fundamentals at the physics level and at the atomic level and things. Which then there's then there's engineering in the research con uh, sorry engineering context uh, research where maybe it's for far more advanced than the chemists, but it's still, you know, looking at process challenges and things like that. When you get into applied research, though, it's very much driven by the partner. That's the big delineation that we would draw in the college sector. People I chat with on this podcast and I discuss Ontario, there seems to be a very common thread that Ontario manufacturing is innovative. Ontario manufacturing is resilient, resourceful. How many great ideas hit the cutting room floor before they had a chance to actually see the light of day? And considering how disrupted the world is, I think the value of what you guys are doing is pretty self-evident. So what advice would you give to a company that's just generated a hundred grams of something cool? I think at that point, uh, people would have to take a step back and begin to think about what the next, uh, the next steps would be on their own journey for commercialization. So that might be driven by the market that they're in. That might be driven by who their current network of partners are. That might be driven by infrastructure considerations. What, what capital equipment do you need? For example, if what you made was 100 grams of a cancer drug, that might be a reasonable volume, but you might also need to think about Health Canada approvals or FDA approvals before you can move on. So every, every journey will have its own next step, but I think it's, that's an important stage to be at to stop and think, okay, where do we go from here? And I think what tends to happen is that people uh, can come to decision points fairly quickly where they don't necessarily have the information to make those choices or, not, or to do so becomes extremely risky. And I, I think it's important to focus on the idea of risk in this context. You touched on the idea that the Ontario sector is, uh, is fairly innovative and fairly resilient and things like that. Uh, and that is all very, very true. Unfortunately, what we don't have access to is, you know, a Silicon Valley scale culture of entrepreneurship, fail fast, fail often, uh, big pockets, big dollars of venture capital. We also don't have very many homegrown 
large national scale champions that are left anymore. Some of our biggest companies are uh, are foreign-owned subsidiaries of of large uh, large foreign companies, and so that means that we don't have the same kind of network of nurturing, supporting uh, companies across sort of an ecosystem that they might have in say the Silicon Valley's of the world, uh, where there's that there's that culture of of risk taking, and so as a result, the idea you know when you get to that point where you have a hundred grams and you think isn't this really cool risk becomes a big challenge. You might only have enough, enough gas in the tank to, take, to make one bet. Am I going to go left or am I going to go right? That, becomes, that binary decision becomes very, very difficult because if you pick wrong, that might be the end of it. You might end up on the cutting room floor as a result. So anything that you can do at that point to make an informed choice about am I going left or am I going right, I think becomes extremely important, extremely valuable. And that's where college applied research, I think, becomes like really, really begins to shine because let us take the risk. Let us do the dumb thing. Let us make the mistake. We don't care. We have no skin in the game. Our success is, is your success. So if we, if, if you say, is 3D printing the way to go? Great. We've got nine 3D printers. We'll, we'll put it through its paces and, and, you know, make a bunch of scrap and, and you can do it all for pennies on the dollar. And then from there, now, all of a sudden, your decision, am I going left or am I going right, becomes a lot more clear. We have, for example, if you are talking about the health, techno- uh, the health sector, uh, I mentioned our two groups that work in health. One of them is the Medical Technologies Innovation Center, which is effectively, and my colleagues sometimes describe it slightly, slightly different terms than this, but is effectively a simulated hospital. It's a 65-bed, fully equipped hospital with full clinical, uh, clinical scale gear and, and uh, you know, clini- trained clinicians but there's no patients in it. Couldn't kill anybody even if you tried. So if you want to go into an environment that's fraught with risk, like the healthcare sector, where sometimes the tab to, to commercialize a product could run into the hundreds, literally the hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a very daunting task. But if you can, if you can do that in a low-risk environment, uh, you can get 75% of the way there before you have to start making decisions around how to allocate what limited resources you might have uh, that's a that's a significant value add to the to the person who's making those go no go decisions, and so I think that's where the real value of the work that we do lies is that by taking that risk out of things, or at the very least reducing it to a manageable level, partners can make informed decisions very very quickly and very very inexpensively on things that might really be you know existential questions for those companies. Uh, we can help them to make those decisions uh, a little bit with a little bit more with a little bit more confidence. And I think what Jeff is saying is is really embodying that entrepreneurship term of fail fast, you know, fail forward. Um, there's certainly lots of moments where at, at a smaller company, at an SME that employs 20 people, a, a small medium-sized enterprise, all the way to a larger company where you know, you, you, they may have different risk tolerances. They may have different amounts of money they can invest in new technology. But at the end of the day, you don't want to waste your time making that left turn when you should have gone right or going straight instead of looking left or right. And I think that's, I think that's a value proposition that is, is so unique in Canada. The applied research model isn't really used anywhere else in North America, um, it, it really excels here in the Canadian market. And I think part of that is because we are often viewed 
on the whole is sort of less, more risk adverse. Um, applied research builds that extra layer of certainty. Um, and again, sometimes a project that we work on is mission critical to an organization. Uh, we work with a company called Barventory that's creating the world's first smart keg scale. Um, where you sort of slip it on. I know I got. I have Nick's attention for our, for our viewers that don't see the video. You put the keg scale under a keg, and a restaurant or bar owner is able to monitor the weight and therefore know when it's time to reorder. Um, monitor any waste if there's anything that you know. If you're worried that your bartenders are are being a bit too generous in their pours, all those things that make business sense. So that's Barventory's core product. And, and we're helping them prototype that and, and bring it to, to market. But then there's other larger companies where it's something that was sort of sitting on someone's side of the desk is really, really important to them, but they just couldn't allocate the resources at the right time. They weren't sure um, what investment to make. They aren't sure if the hype is justified. And I think a lot about IoT and sensor systems. You can put minuscule sensors on every piece of equipment and monitor it, you know, and, and get tons and tons of data. You know, data is our, our new currency, and it's something that we actually is probably have more of than cash money. But, you know, you can say you can read in a, in a journal or a white paper that says predictive maintenance monitoring is the way to go. And your maintenance supervisor can say, this looks really cool, but I have no idea. I'm just reading this on the internet. I'm reading this in a trade publication. With applied research, you call us and we say, well, let's set up our sensors. Let's put together a package that makes sense for your organization. Let's run it through its paces. And then at the end of this, you'll have the data you need to make a decision. And then we send them out to, you know, work with perhaps a larger organization to implement that IoT technology um, to find the right product for their needs so that they aren't under-investing and they aren't over-investing. The other thing I just want to, touch on something Andrew mentioned, because it's, it is really important piece, I think, of our value proposition, not necessarily related to innovation and the value of death, but, but uh, is extremely important. And that's that idea of things that are in the corner of people's desks. Everybody has things on the corner of their desk that they never get to. And that's, I think, particularly true in a resource constrained environment, like in SME. Uh, you know, I, we've worked with many partners where the head engineer is also the head of quality and the head of purchasing and helps the sales team out and, and helps out on the production floor when things are running a little behind. When you have somebody who's wearing that many hats, innovation becomes basically the last thing on their list. They're, they got to, they got to execute. They got to get stuff out the door. There's not the opportunity for them to sit back and think, huh, what if we tried this instead? And so that corner of the desk project, what I call sometimes the nice to haves, not the need to haves, because if you need to have it, you need to have it. You don't want to take any risk in your need to have environment. But on the nice to haves, maybe we wouldn't mind, you know, playing around a little bit when we get to it, when we find the time. And generally speaking, we just never do find the time. IdeaWorks and, and, and college applied research in general can be that capacity for the price of adding, you know, a half of an FTE of somebody else to support your team. You would get access to people with PhDs and people with master's degrees and millions of dollars worth of capital equipment and, you know, 20,000 square feet of additional space that you didn't otherwise have. And those resources don't come cheap under normal circumstances. If you had to go and build that yourself, that would be almost impossible to do. But you can get that with a phone call if you, uh, if you reach out to, to uh, one of our college, you know, sister colleges or, or to IdeaWorks. 
And, and then, you know, within a matter of weeks, those nice to have projects, those corner of the desk projects can be up and running and staffed. And you can answer some of those questions. Maybe they go somewhere, maybe they don't, but at the very least it, you're bringing resources to bear for, again, you know, cents on the dollar. Um, and, and, and maybe, maybe you get, you do get a huge win and all of a sudden it, it, it's game changing for the, for where your business is going to go. So those types of problems, those types of challenges are, are really, really a great fit for a way we can help the community. When Jeff, when you were telling, sort of sharing that information, it sort of reminded me of that feeling you get when you have a really, really good idea and then you do nothing with it or you weren't able to sell it the right way. And I think applied research gives you that chance to take that feeling, to take that idea and see it through and see it to its full potential. And maybe that potential is someone like one of our research labs looking at it and saying, you know what? you've gone as far as you can go, it's going to be technically impossible or incredibly expensive to do this, maybe you should pause. Or it's seen that that idea you had, like, it really had legs, it can really go places. And I think we don't talk a lot about the psychological impact of applied research in that feel good moment. But I think it's there. I think it's there when we we talk to our partners, when we talk them even a few years later, because we always say applied research, the best success stories come three or four years later when you see the success of a new product that you help develop. Like it's, it's a nice feeling. It's a nice feeling, I think, to, to take an innovation, to take an idea you had and to know that you gave it the best shot in this world to succeed. And in many cases do. The image of that project off to the side of your desk, I think, that one resonates with me. That idea off to the side of the desk that's kind of a nice to have, now all of a sudden the threshold is kind of coming down for the, the costs of exploring it. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. What I guess, so let's just say you've, you're talking now to the people who have those ideas on their desks. How do they know? What you, like, what, what's the criteria for knowing, oh, I've had this idea for a while. I need to talk to IdeaWorks. What's the criteria? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because oftentimes when we first meet with a company, they don't know what they need and we don't know how best we can help. And so sometimes that dance can go on for a little while, especially with larger companies. Um, you know, if we, we, we talk about the whales. Uh, some of these larger companies, they kind of do everything at some level in their organization and we can kind of help them with a whole bunch of stuff. So where is the exact point of where, where we match up or what's the what's the lowest hanging fruit that we want to start with as a, as the first step that can be a bit of a dance to try and to try and find out the, the, the short answer to your question though, is most people have a nice to have list somewhere, even if it's in the back of their mind. So come talk to us, give us a call, come in. We're happy to give you a tour. We have, we pre COVID we would run tours sometimes three, four times a week. We'd have people through. Uh, we love those kinds of conversations and we welcome them. Most people, I would say, I'm not going to say 100%, but it's it's high 90s uh, of the people who come through will say something that sounds a lot like, wow, I had no idea you guys did this here. That's pretty much what we hear from everybody that comes through the door. So I would certainly encourage you to give us a call, come check us out, talk through some of the ideas you have in the back of your mind. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind won't be the exact perfect fit, but we have a pretty good track record. When we, when we have conversation uh, and we talk through the challenges that your business might be facing, some of the problems that you're seeing, some of the pain points that you're feeling, we'll find, we'll find a way to, to help. 
So over the course of my research uh, for doing this podcast, I, something kind of came up a, a few times, and that is this idea of the silo mentality, which to me, and again, I'm not an academic, to me, that sounds more like a cultural uh, challenge within institutions. Um, do you guys care to comment on, on, on the silo mentality? I think for, for many organizations, for many people working in the private sector, sector, when they start working in or working with public sector organizations like colleges, like universities, um, like innovation resources, such as a regional innovation center, they are perplexed by why we're very open about our problems. We're very open about best practices and are sort of asking, why are you giving away your competitive advantage? Why are you talking about this? But the thing is, is that if you aren't talking about your problems, you aren't finding the people that can help you. Uh, we always joke that the, the best advertising tool for applied research is, is word of mouth. But in all seriousness, it, it is. People are looking for a front door that very clearly marks storefront for help. And it's not like that. It's like a merry-go-round where you jump in because you're talking to IRAP and then IRAP says, talk to this college. They have expertise here. Us, for example, as a college, we say, great, we're helping you get here. Talk to this contract manufacturer. They can help you grow. And I think once you, once you get over that sort of cone of silence, once you realize that if I talk about my problems, I'm not necessarily giving away anything that will set me apart. I'm actually strengthening what I have and bringing in new ideas it makes a wealth of difference to the innovation journey. So at this point, uh, I'd like to thank you both for your time, for your insights. It sounds like you are an additional enabler of Ontario innovation. Absolutely. I would say that's our role. And as such, I am I'm more than happy to tell this story because I think it's an important one. Well, we appreciate that. Jeff, Andrea, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to uh, our next conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.